The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, before we get started this evening in the Word, I just thought I would uh, help you understand a little background of some things that are going on in our own culture. And I know this is probably going to put some of you out of fellowship, so we'll wait and have our confession afterward, and that way you know, we can all do it at the same time. Now, we know we live in a society now that has just given itself over to all this uh, postmodernist, multicultural, diversity sort of nonsense, so everything's got to have equal play, unless, of course, we know, unless you're a biblical Christian. Then, then of course, you get ignored. And uh, some of you have noted that not only are we getting uh, encouraged to have a happy Ramadan or a happy Hanukkah, but also a happy Kwanzaa. And many of you don't know where Kwanzaa came from, and I hear people say all, all along, well, where did this come from? We have different ideas, and news media folk have different ideas. But I was uh, reading Ann Coulter's co- column, and I decided, which she devoted to an explanation of the origin of Kwanzaa. And I learned a few things. I had known the general framework of this, but there were some things she pointed out that I wasn't real familiar with. So in the spirit of multicultural diversity and in the spirit of honesty and truthfulness, I thought I would read parts of her column to you. You can go online and and read, uh, read the column for yourself if you wish. She begins... President Bush's 2005 Kwanzaa message began with the patently absurd statement, quote, African Americans and people around the world reflect on African heritage during Kwanzaa. She says, I believe more African Americans spent this season reflecting on the birth of Christ than some phony non-Christian holiday invented a few decades ago by an FBI stooge. Kwanzaa is a holiday for white liberals, not blacks. It is a fact that Kwanzaa was invented in 1966 by a black radical FBI stooge, Ron Karinga, a.k.a. Dr. Maulana Karinga. Karinga was a founder of United Slaves, a violent nationalist rival to the Black Panthers and a dupe of the FBI. In what was probably ultimately a foolish gamble during the madness of the 60s, the FBI encouraged the most extreme black nationalist organizations in order to discredit and split the left. The more preposterous the organization, the better. Karinga's United Slaves was perfect. In the annals of the American 60s, Karinga was the father Gapon, stooge of the Tsarist police. Despite modern perceptions that blend all the black activists of the 60s, the Black Panthers did not hate whites. They did not seek armed revolution. Those were the precepts of Karenga's United Slaves. United Slaves were proto-fascists, walking around in dashikis, gunning down Black Panthers, and adopting invented African names. Kwanzaa itself is a lunatic blend of the schmaltzy 60s rhetoric, black racism, and Marxism. Indeed, the seven principles of Kwanzaa praise collectivism in every possible arena of life economics, work, personality, even litter removal. When Karenga was asked to distinguish Kawaida, the philosophy underlying Kwanzaa, from classical Marxism, he essentially explained that under Kawaida, we also hate whites. While while, While taking the best of early Chinese and Cuban socialism, which one assumes would exclude the forced abortions, imprisonments for homosexuals, and forced labor, Kawaida practitioners believe one's racial identity, quote, determines life conditions, life chances, and self-understanding, unquote. There's an inclusive philosophy for you. 
Coincidentally, the seven principles of Kwanzaa are the very same seven principles of the Symbionese Liberation Army, another charming invention of the least great generation. In 1974, Patricia Hearst, kidnapped victim come SLA revolutionary, posed next to the banner of her alleged captives. Y'all remember what that looked like, that seven-headed cobra. Each snakehead stood for one of the SLA's revolutionary principles. I'm going to attempt to pronounce these. Umoja, Kuji Chagulia, Ujima, Ujamaa, Nia, Kuumba, and Imani. The same seven principles of Kwanzaa. With his Kwanzaa greetings, President Bush is saluting the intellectual sibling of the Symbionese Liberation Army, killer of housewives and police. He is saluting the founder of United Slaves, who were such lunatics that they shot Black Panthers for not being sufficiently insane, all with the FBI as their covert ally. It is as if, I love this analogy, remember this next time you see some uninformed news media type talk about happy Kwanzaa. It's as if David Duke, you know, he was the Ku Klux Klansman who ran for political office or senator out of Louisiana. It's as if David Duke invented a holiday called Anglica and the President of the United States issued a presidential proclamation honoring the synthetic holiday. People might well stand up and take notice if that happened. Kwanzaa was the result of a 60 psychosis grafted onto the black community. Liberals have become so mesmerized by multicultural nonsense that they have forgotten the real history of Kwanzaa and Karinga's united slaves, the violence, the Marxism, the insanity. Most absurdly, or most absurdly for leftists anyway, is that they have forgotten the FBI's tacit encouragement of this murderous black nationalist cult founded by the father of Kwanzaa. Now, the holiday concocted by an FBI dupe is honored in a presidential proclamation in public schools across the nation. Bush called Kwanzaa a holiday that promotes unity and faith. Faith in what? Liberals' unbounded capacity to respect any faith but Christianity? A movement that started approximately 2,000 years before Kwanzaa leaps well beyond mere unity and faith to proclaim that we are all equal before God. Quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. It was practitioners of that faith who were at the forefront of the abolitionist and civil rights movements. But that's all been washed down the memory hole along with the true origins of Kwanzaa. So now that you know where Kwanzaa came from, and it's a promotion of hate the whites, radical uh, black politics from the 60s, you can go enjoy Kwanzaa. Well, let's be refreshed by a study of the Word of God. So before we go there, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess any sins if necessary. Use 1 John 1, 9, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you this evening in prayer knowing that we have a high priest seated at your right hand, a high priest who has gone through the adversity, the testing, the trials that we go through, yet without sin, a high priest who is our mediator, a high priest who is the one who died for us that we might have this immediate access into your presence. Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed down through the ages, that you have indeed spoken to us, and we have the incumbent responsibility to listen and to abide by what you have revealed. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, may we be encouraged by the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we finished up the section that ended in chapter 4, verse 14, which is, according to the structure of Hebrews, the second major division in the book. So tonight what I want to do, is, is our pattern as we're going through these studies, is to stop and back up and sort of lift our eyes away from the text a little bit so that instead of doing verse-by-verse detailed exegesis and analysis, 
we can stop and reflect and and look at what the writer is saying in terms of a broad overview of these first four chapters. Remember, when this was written, it was probably a, a written and edited form of what was once given as a sermon, probably a five-point sermon, closing with two broad application challenge sections in the last three chapters. So when Hebrews was originally given, this was a... Sunday morning exposition of Scripture and gives us some idea of how they understood the exposition of Scripture in the early church. But the congregation would have heard the entirety of this as one message. Sort of challenges you in your understanding of how well the ancients were able to focus and concentrate during an hour or two hour message. So if that's the case with Hebrews... We also realized that once it was written down and it was passed around from congregation to congregation, they received it like a letter and the pastor would stand up and read through the entirety of Hebrews in one city. So the early church heard this as one unified message. What happens today is we come into a book like Hebrews and we do our analysis and verse by verse exegesis but we forget to just step back and look at it at its entirety so that we catch the real impact of the original message. So that's why I try to take the time as we go through this to back up and sort of lift our eyes above the text and look at at the overview. Before we begin, there's a few things I want to remind you of as a background from the Scriptures as a whole. First of all, throughout the Old Testament, we have to recognize that there is a promise to Israel of a coming kingdom. Again and again and again, there is this promise of a coming kingdom that is grounded on the covenants that God gave to Abraham and later to David. And the Abrahamic covenant, they were promised a specific piece of real estate and that there would be an an everlasting seed, a multiplicity of people as descendants of Abraham, and then they would be through them a there would be a worldwide blessing. In the Davidic covenant, there was a promise that a descendant of David would sit on the throne of David, a literal, the literal throne of David in Jerusalem, and rule the kingdom, and there would be an eternal dynasty. So we know that from at least 2000 BC, there was a promise of a future kingdom. And this, these promises were explained in more and more detail as the centuries went by. So I want to remind us of just a few of these promises before we get started this evening. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, this is the latter days of, the, of Israel, their kingdom, that in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the temple mount in the future millennial kingdom we know now, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it, indicating that all nations, all the Gentiles will go to Jerusalem, go to Israel to worship at that future temple. Many people shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Israel will be the center point of worship in that future kingdom. Then we read in verse 4, And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So according to verse 4, it will be time of, a time of unprecedented peace where there will not be war or violence or international uh, calamity. Incidentally, this is the verse that is yanked out of context and and put over the entry to the United Nations. So you have to realize that this is a messianic promise, and by adopting it as their slogan at the UN, they are claiming a messianic role for themselves, which shows that the UN has, at its very core, a religious 
uh, orientation. They claim to be a, uh, a, the tool for bringing in the kingdom. Think about that next time we talk about the UN. Isaiah 9.6 is a second passage that emphasizes this future kingdom. A passage, of course, is very familiar at Christmas time, like now. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, literally, uh, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Note the relationship to the Davidic covenant there. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this pictures that time that the ruler will be God himself, but it relates the deity to the son of David, to his humanity. Then we skip ahead to Daniel 2.44. There we read, And in the days of these kings, that is, the final kings in human history, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It's an eternal kingdom established by God over against all the human kingdoms. Then in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, all of these verses together teach that there will be a future kingdom on the earth when the Messiah, that promised anointed ruler that is a descendant of David, will reign over a literal, physical kingdom on the earth. From these passages, we see that the Messiah will be a royal king, a descendant from David according to the Davidic covenant, which is explained in both 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. The Old Testament prophets understood that the king would not simply be a human king, though. Even though he's a descendant of David, they understood that the scope of his kingdom was such that no human could fulfill that requirement. Every kingdom requires a king that's powerful enough to establish the kingdom, knowledgeable enough to rule the kingdom, wise enough to administer the kingdom. But what human king would be able to organize, administer, rule, and maintain a kingdom that included all the nations of the earth? It was clear to the ancient prophets that no one but God would be equal to the task. So it was clear that the Messiah, the coming king, would not only be human, but by necessity would have to be God himself. This is why you have passages such as Isaiah 7.14 that the, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So there was a clear understanding that the son would be God and the son would also be true humanity. Now that's important because in the next year, if you haven't noticed, there will, will be a blockbuster movie released in May based on the blockbuster best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code. And the claim in the Da Vinci Code is that Jesus never claimed to be God, that the concept of the deity of Jesus was adopted by the early church at the Council of Nicaea in 325 B.C., and it was something that was basically forced upon the church in order to provide some basis of unity and give it some level of strength. Of course, that's totally fraudulent and goes against uh, church history. Here we have a, uh, a book that we're studying in, Hebrew, in Hebrews that clearly recognizes the full deity of the second person of the Trinity who becomes flesh. This is the foundation for these, the first four chapters is that Jesus is God who takes on humanity. And Hebrews was written sometime in the 60s, 62, 63, 64, somewhere in that period. 
we know that Clement of Rome, who wrote his epistle sometime in the 90s, was familiar with the text and content of Hebrews because he quoted it numerous times. So by 90 A.D., the uh, Clement of Rome was fully aware of everything that was taught in Hebrews. So Hebrews and the emphasis on the deity of Christ is clearly predates uh, Clement, predates a number of other church fathers in the second century who also affirmed the full deity of Jesus Christ. So the idea that this was something that gradually evolved in the early church and was foisted on the early church by a bunch of white male patriarchs. We always get it, don't we, guys? Your white male Western Europeans just force this on the church. It's all part of the influence of Greek philosophy, uh, according to them. But you never had anything like this in, in Plato, Aristotle, or any of the other uh, Greek philosophers. It's clear, though, from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be both man and God. Again, Isaiah 9.6, the child that is born is clearly human. The son that is given is clearly the divine son of God. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name indicating his identity would be based upon terms that are related to deity, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, prince of peace. These are all terms that are loaded with uh, the concept of deity. And he will end up on the throne of David and over his kingdom, and he will rule the kingdom according to Isaiah 9.7. So the backdrop for understanding Hebrews is this concept of a future messianic kingdom. But we go beyond what we've looked at so far to understand the framework introduced by a couple of other passages. We understand from Psalm 2.7, which we've studied quite a bit, that the Messiah is going to come, but he must await the, the, the giving of this kingdom, that God has to uh, do something with his enemies. This is indicated again in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That there's this waiting period prior to the acquisition of the kingdom, according which takes place uh, in that time period indicated by Daniel's chapter 7. That this Messiah who is going to come and establish the kingdom is also a priest. According to Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent your priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now all of this, all these passages were well known by the early church. Some of these psalms were memorized by Jews and the early Christians alike. They were familiar with these concepts. Unlike most modern Christians, they just don't they, they don't have a familiarity with the Old Testament or with Old Testament theology and with the things that are taught about the Messiah in all of these passages. So so most modern Evangelicals just have a real hard time understanding this because they don't know the Old Testament. But the recipients of the book of Hebrews understood these things. And they understood these connections. So the writer of Hebrews is going back to all these different passages in the Old Testament and he's interconnecting them in order to drive home some specific points to this group of hearers that he's addressing, these group of Jews, born-again Jews, who are being threatened by various forms of adversity and, and persecution and are on the verge of just throwing in the towel and, and leaving Christianity behind and going back to Judaism. So there's this warning addressed to them that they need to pay attention to the realities that the Old Testament describes about this Messianic kingdom, about how adversity and, and testing plays a role in the maturity of the church-age believer, and a warning of what they will lose if they give up and go back, go back into Judaism. Now, the same principle, though, applies to every believer because we all go through times of discouragement. We all go through times of testing. We all go through times of doubt. And we need to recognize that it's, it's more than just some little philosophical system. It's more than just making sure that we get into heaven there are some serious things that, that God is doing in your life as a believer in preparation for the future. 
And that is the theme that we find in Hebrews. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, talking about the millennium and church age believers in the millennium, states, Blessed and holy is he who has a role, not, I'm excuse me, he who has an inheritance, that's the idea of part. It's not the idea of a role, but it's the idea of an inheritance, a share. Blessed and holy is he who has a, an, inheritance, an inheritance in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they, that is, those who are believers who advance and are rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So Revelation 20, verse 6 tells us that there's two functions we're going to have in the future millennial kingdom. One is to be priests to God and priests of Christ under his high priesthood, and we're going to reign, that is, there's a reigning and ruling responsibility. We're part of that divine administration in the millennial kingdom, that it's not just a kingdom that is ruled by one person, but there is an administration, a cadre of leaders that will administer the kingdom throughout that period of time. And that cadre is made up of believers who advance to spiritual maturity during the church age. This is the backdrop for understanding the message of Hebrews. So let's go back to the beginning and just think our way through what the writer of Hebrews has been saying so that we can prepare ourselves for the next major division. The first five verses form a prologue, an introduction, brings out the main ideas or introduces the main ideas that are going to be developed throughout the course of the uh, epistle. God, the main idea of the first five ver- or the first four verses is given in the main clause of verse two. In these last days, God has spoken to us by means of his son. That is the large overriding principle for the whole book of Hebrews. God has spoken to us. And if God has spoken to us, then that implies a certain response from you. The reality is, as Francis Schaeffer put in the title of one of his basic books, God is there and he is not silent. God has spoken. And because God has spoken, it is mandatory that we listen and that we respond. Otherwise, there are dangerous consequences to missing or to being disobedient to what God has said. So we're told that God has spoken to us by means of His Son. This indicates a final and complete revelation. Now, who is the Son? Well, the Son is qualified by eight statements given in these three verses from verse 2 through verse 4. He is the appointed heir, indicating a future inheritance. He is the one who made the world, indicating that he is the immediate creator of the world under the authority of God the Father. Furthermore, in verse 3, it says that he is the brightness of his glory, that is, the flashing forth of God's glory. He is, he, he is the revelation of his glory. John, in John chapter One tells us that no man has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten has revealed Him. This is the role of the Son, to be that which flashes forth to express and to explain the glory of God. Note that word glory. It's a key word that is picked up in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the second main point. Jesus Christ is the flashing forth of His glory. Forth He is the image of His person, the express express identical image of God. He is full deity. Fifth, he upholds all things by the word of his power. It is Jesus Christ who is sustaining the universe. He not only made it, he sustains it moment by moment. So the doctrine of creation as laid out in Genesis is not just based on some ancient Near Eastern myth but is a profound doctrine that must be taken literally. You throw out a literal 24-hour, six-day creation in Genesis, you undercut everything else in the Bible. You can't mess with a literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1 or it destroys everything else biblically. 
So it's not an option. Jesus Christ created everything and He sustains everything. Sixth, He is the one who cleansed our sins. And seventh, He is now seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That immediately brings to mind Psalm 110, verse 1, which will be quoted later on in the chapter, that He is seated at the right hand. And this indicates that He's waiting for something, which is what is indicated in the very first verse of the next section, which tells us that the focus is on the world to come. So the focus of this epistle is on what God is doing and preparing us for in the future. So our present reality is completely oriented to the future destination that God has for us. And eighth, we're told that this son has has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than the angel's. That last point in verse 5 opens the door. It's the transition into the main idea of the first point in this five-point sermon of Hebrews. And that first point is oriented to who Jesus Christ is as the Creator God over the angels. So in verses 6 to 14, in verses 6 to 14, the point is that God has designated the eternal Son, to be the future righteous ruler in contrast to angels who are creatures made to serve God. God has designated the second person of the Trinity who's already identified as the eternal Son and Creator to be the future righteous ruler in contrast to angels who are creatures. So we see the connection being made in this first point between the human Son and the divine Son. And this is brought out immediately in the two quotes in verse 5. The section from 1.5 down to 1.14 is built on an analysis of seven Old Testament quotations. In verse 5 we have a quote from Psalm 2 verse 7. You are my son, today I declare you to be my begotten one. That we saw was based, uh, is a way it should be translated based on the Hebrew of Psalm 2.7. It's an emphasis on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ as Son of God. But the writer of Hebrews connects Psalm 2-7, which emphasizes the divine aspect of who the Messiah is, with the Davidic or human aspect. In the second quote, which is from Psalm 89, which is from Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27. This is part of the Davidic covenant. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's also related to 2 Samuel 7.14. And then in verse 6, we're told that angels will worship Him. A quote from Psalm 97, verse 7. And then in verse 7, that there's a contrast. The angels of God worship Him, but of the angels, He said, He, he makes His angels spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. Verse 7 is a quote from Psalm 104.4 and is designed to emphasize the fact that angels are made, they're creatures, over against this messianic son who is the one who made all things. So that indicates that the angels are less, lesser than the son. The son is equal with God, the angels are creatures. And then in verse 8 and 9, we see that this son is going to be established on a throne And that throne is going to be characterized by righteousness. This is based on two quotes, Psalm 45, 6, and 7, and Isaiah 61, 1. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That immediately picks up the idea from the Old Testament of the Messianic kingdom that would be eternal. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than than your companions. And that brings in the idea that this messianic ruler is going to have a group of companions. And the analogy that's that's, or the imagery that comes across there is that of David when he was out of uh, of, uh, favor with Saul and Saul's persecuting him. David's already been anointed king. Saul is still on the throne in Israel, but is persecuting David. So David had to flee to the wilderness of Judah, and while he's down at En Gedi and at other places, other outcasts are gathered with him. 
And as he gathers this group of outcasts who are all being uh, hounded by Saul, as he gathers them together, they become, they are his companions, and he forms the nucleus of his future administration by these uh, men who are considered by Saul to be ne'er-do-wells. They look down upon them as not being worthy. And yet when David comes into his kingdom, it is those companions, later called David's mighty men, it is those companions who become the core of his administration in his kingdom. And that's the foundation, our foundational imagery that we have. That's, that's at the background of Hebrews. We as the church are considered outcasts and we will be joined with the Lord as rulers during the future kingdom. So verses uh, 10 through 12 focus then on focus us on the kingdom of God, focus on Christ as the eternal creator. It's a quote from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28. And it focuses on the fact that this current heavens are going will disappear, but the Lord's kingdom will go on beyond that because he is the creator. So that's the contrast between the messianic king as creator and the angels who are mere creatures. Verse 13 introduces that uh, contrast to which of the angels... Has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? So that brings in the idea of a present tense, a present time waiting for the uh, destruction of the enemies so that the kingdom can be established. And it introduces a present role of these angels. Notice the angels are said to be creatures back in verse 5. They were created to be ministers of God according to that quote, and then it's expanded that that role of ministry or part of that ministry role is given in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits set forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? And we saw that the concept of salvation there isn't the idea of immediate justification salvation, but it is the idea of the future fulfillment of everything God has saved us for in the coming of the kingdom. So the salvation there isn't something that happened when we trusted Christ as Savior. It is what we're destined for when we realize everything that God has saved us to become. Then there's a warning. The first practical warning comes in the first uh, four verses of chapter 2. This is the first challenge. It's an application. There's this it follows a didactic section. 1.5 down through 1.14 is explaining who Jesus Christ is in reference to these Old Testament passages indicating that He is the fully divine. He's fully human. He's the one who's going to establish the future reign. And this reign and, I mean, and His person, He is superior to the angels. And then He's going to draw out an application. It's not mere doctrine. The hypostatic union isn't just something interesting to learn to demonstrate that Jesus is more than just a man. It has some significant implications for our day-to-day life. And this is introduced in verse 1 of chapter 2. There is a challenge. Therefore, that is, in light of all that we just learned in verses 5 to 14, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. In other words, don't just listen and collect doctrines in your notebook, but pay attention to these because they need to change your life, they need to change the way you think, and the cha- change the way you orient yourself to what's going on in your life. And the warning there is, lest we drift away. So you'll be tempted to drift away, to think of Bible class as just something you do, something of secondary significance, if you don't realize that Bible class is teaching you how to think biblically so that you can put this into practice day in and day out. The Holy Spirit uses that to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, which prepares us, gives us the capacity for leadership, the capacity for responsibility that we will have when we are ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future kingdom. And we have this emphasis on hearing. We have the emphasis on the Word, that we need to give heed to the things that we have heard. Why? Because God has spoken to us 
in these last days, back in verse 2. So, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 2 says, For if the word, that is, if the message that's spoken through the angels, the Old Testament law, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Now, stop a minute. Think about that verse. What the writer is doing is introducing us to the broad idea that, remember, Old Testament saints received their, their revelation of the law at Mount Sinai, it was mediated through the angels. They had all the various manifestations of God there. They even heard the voice of God. But instead of being obedient, they were disobedient, and there were consequences to their disobedience. Now, they were saved, but they lost something. Now, it just introduces that idea in verse 2. But that idea becomes the main understanding, or the main idea in the warning passage that comes at the end of the second point. So he's building a case that each time we go through one of these uh, points in Hebrews, information that's already been introduced is going to be further expanded and developed. So he just begins that introduction in verse 2. For if the word, that is, if the message spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That is the main point is if there were serious consequences to the, to the Jews in the Exodus generation for their failures, then what do you think is going to happen to us if we take this salvation, this whole package deal, if we take it lightly, if we don't make it the highest priority in our life to grow and mature as believers? That's the thrust of the first challenge, the first application. Now, in review what we learn is that, first of all, the Father designated the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, as a fa- to be a faithful ruler. Second, we learn that the Son is first and foremost full deity. Deity isn't something added to His humanity, but humanity is something added to His deity. Third, we learn that the Son entered into human history in order to become the Davidic Son, to establish the Davidic Kingdom. Fourth, we learn that the divine Davidic Son will establish a righteous reign that extends to eternity. It's not just the millennial kingdom. It extends beyond the millennial kingdom on into eternity after this present heavens and earth has been destroyed. Fifth, we learn that this kingdom is now on hold. It's not present in this life. This is made clear, of course, in 2.5 when it talks about the world to come. And sixth point, we need to prepare for it. We church-age believers need to be preparing ourselves today for that future uh, responsibility in the kingdom. That's the first point. Then we move to the second point, which begins in chapter 2, verse 5, and extends down to the end of chapter 4 in verse 16. The focus here is on the world to come is laid out in verse 5. We're in preparation for the world to come. And then in verses 6 and 7, there is a quote from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, Job, as well as Job 7, 17, Psalm 144, 3 have the same ideas. It's a key Old Testament concept related to the destiny of man. The question that's being answered is, why is man so important? Why does God care about human beings? More importantly, why does God care about you and your spiritual life? Because God has an overarching plan. He has a purpose in creating man. That purpose, it seems, was hurt by the fall. What we find out is God in his wisdom knew what would happen in the fall, and God established a broader plan that will eventually be fulfilled in the ideal man who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question that's raised is, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why is man so important? Or the Son of Man, that you take care of Him. You made Him a little lower than the angels. And then note, you have crowned Him with glory and honor. That is who man is in an unfallen state. God has crowned Him with glory and honor and set Him over the works of your hands. And ultimately, how does that get fulfilled? In the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see in the next few verses. And you have put all things in subjection under His feet. Genesis 1, 26-28. Man was created to rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, 
and the beasts of the field. That was his original intent, but things got messed up when Adam sinned. Now verse 8 goes on to say, For in that he, that is God, put all in subjection under him, that is man, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. It's been marred by creation. So how is God going to, I mean marred by sin. So how is God going to reverse what happened as a result of the fall? It comes through Jesus, and this is part of why he had to become a man. The second person of the Trinity had to enter into human history in order to solve the sin problem, number one, and number two, in order to fulfill the divine purpose for man in ruling over all creation. So verse 9 states the foundation, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. He goes to the cross to die as a spiritual substitute for us. Why? In order to redeem mankind and bring them back to their original purpose. We see Jesus, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. But we just saw that phrase, didn't we, back in verse 7. You have crowned him, that's mankind, with glory and honor. But when mankind disobeyed God, when Adam fell in the garden, that's why that has to be taken as a literal Adam, a literal Eve, and a literal garden. When that fall occurred, man's glory and honor was tainted, was destroyed. So when Jesus comes and he suffers death, he is then crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, verse 10, we come into an understanding of why Jesus had to be crowned with glory, so that he can bring the human race to glory. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to what? To glory. See, man starts off with glory and honor, he loses that glory and honor because it's destroyed by the darkness of sin. Christ comes to the cross, fulfills the mission of redemption so that man can be restored to his original purpose and destiny. And so Jesus Christ is crowned with glory and honor because he tastes death for every man so that he can then lead all believers into glory. You've got to follow those key words as you move through the text. Now, how does he do that? Well, this is introduced by the concept of sanctification in the next few verses. That Jesus Christ had to come in order to set the pattern for how spiritual growth takes place. And he could only do that by becoming a man and demonstrating that as a man, by using the tools that God gave him, he could surmount the test, the adversity, the suffering that we all go through and he could demonstrate that God's Word and the Holy Spirit are sufficient for giving us victory over every problem that we face in life. Verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies, it's God the Father, and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he, God, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. There's that companion concept again. He calls us brethren because we go through that same process that he does and we seek to implement the same tools that he did in spiritual growth. As a result of that, if we are advancing spiritually, there will be a time at the judgment seat of Christ when our name will be declared to the brethren. This is a quote in verse 12 from Psalm 22, uh, verses 22 and 25. Other quotes emphasize the fact that the basis for this advance in the spiritual life is trust in Him. Now that's really important because in the flow of this overall argument, what's going to happen in in the warning? The warning is going to be based on the fact that the Jews in the wilderness fail to trust. Jesus, in contrast, trusted trusted God consistently through His life And therefore, he achieved what God intended for him to to achieve. But the Jews failed. And because they failed and were disobedient, they didn't enter into his rest. 
But the warning is going to go on to say, but there remains a rest for us, and we can enter that rest if we trust God. Now, the rest, as I'll point out, isn't entry into heaven. It is entry into the full rewards related to our future uh, destiny in the millennial kingdom. So the emphasis in verse 13 and 14 is on the faith rest drill as the foundational means or the foundational mechanic for advancing in the Christian life. Now verse 14 goes back to the fundamental principle of the necessity of the hypostatic union. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. The second person of the Trinity had to share fully in humanity. He wasn't just an apparition. He wasn't just uh, some imaginary ghost that floated through life. He had to be fully human in order to fulfill his task and conquering death and pay for sins and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is what prepares him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now that's a key idea. This word faithful, notice it's going to be picked up in the next paragraph at the beginning of chapter 3. He went through all of this testing and he faithfully trusted God day in and day out, never failed, and that qualified him to go to the cross. At the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. He goes into the grave. He is raised from from the dead. He ascends to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is glorified so that he can then bring many sons to glory. And he is going to work with us in order to help us get there. And that's the point of verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, he's gone through adversity, he's gone through these tests, in that he has gone through them, he's able to aid us. That's the goal. He has to aid us. We have to rely upon his assistance in order to uh, follow him in glory. The concept of his faithfulness is emphasized again in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. That Jesus Christ was faithful in all that was given to him, but he had a higher position than Moses. And thus in verse 3 we read, For this one has been counted worthy of what? More glory than Moses. See, that this concept of glory continues to be developed. He's worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as the one who built the house has more honor than the house. So because he is the Son of God, he is worthy of more glory than Moses. Then we come to the conclusion, which starts in 3.7 and goes down through the end of chapter uh, 4.16. This is crucial. This is where he drives the point home. He begins with an extended quote, from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And it begins with the statement, Today, right now, if you will hear his voice. Psalm 95 was written by David. We don't know that from reading Psalm 95. We know it because in Hebrews 4, 7, he says that David wrote it. David wrote it 400 years after the Exodus generation failed in the wilderness. But what David does is he goes back to what happened in the wilderness and their failure. And the principle was that their failure to trust God caused them to lose their, the, the promised rest, to not enter into the promised land. And so David, after meditating upon that event, writes Psalm 95 as a psalm related to the Messianic kingdom. It's one of the Messianic psalms related to the coming kingdom. And as he reflects upon the Exodus generation's failure to enter into the land because they didn't believe God, he then challenges his own generation that if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, today you must listen to his voice, not ignore it and not be disobedient, not be uh, faithless like the Exodus generation. So Psalm 95, 7-11 is a quotation taken by the writer of Hebrews and then applied to his generation in roughly 63 A.D. And then the writer of Hebrews 
can, by universalizing this, can take that and it can be applied to any believer in the church age. So the command is just as true for us today as it was for the uh, first century believers and just as true for them as it was for David's generation that time is short. Today, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Today, if you will hear his voice. What does that remind you of? Back at 1-2. God has spoken to us by means of his Son. So today, if you'll hear his voice, it needs to change your priorities, change your scale of values, change your life of unbelief to a life of walking by means of faith in the Scriptures. So there is a warning that begins to be developed in verse 12 with the challenge that we are to encourage or challenge one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that word for hardened was a word that had been applied to the Exodus generation. And it means to be stiff, to be resistant against God, to stiffen your resolve, your negative volition, uh, to resist what the Word says and not apply it, to be more concerned about the day-to-day cares of life and the details of life than what the Word of God has to say. And the warning is based on the failure of the Exodus generation, verses 16 through 19, for who having heard, rebelled. And then the warning in verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in to rest because of unbelief. Now we saw that the idea of rest is used three ways in this section. It's used of God's creation rest, having created in six days, he then ceased his work on the seventh day. That became a pattern for God's promise to Israel that having gone through the slavery in Egypt for 400 years, they would enter into the promised land and they would experience rest from their labor in the promised land. But that generation failed. So they didn't enter the rest. And that in turn is taken as an analogy to our living our life and then entering into the millennial rest of the future kingdom. So there are three rests that we talked about that are given in this chapter. the God's creation rest, the promised land rest, and the future kingdom rest. Now just as David brought the urgency of the past into the present of his generation, so the writer of Hebrews brings this urgency into our generation. Again in 4.7 he says, Today if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Three times he quotes that. Why? Because it's so easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day details of life and to be distracted from an eternal divine perspective on life. It's easy for us to forget that God has provided everything for us and we have to live in complete contrast to the values, the standards, and the lifestyle of the world around us because we're headed to a different destiny. And there remains for us this promise of a rest, of entering into that rest. This is in 4 verse 9. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. It is yet future. It's not referring to the past rest of the, of the uh, promised land. It's re- referring to a future rest that is ours, that is based on, on labor. Verse 10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. This isn't works related to salvation. It is living the Christian life, Christian service, putting into uh, application what we learn. I don't know about you. That's labor. It takes effort to go to Bible class sometimes, to study the Word, to implement the principles of God's Word. That's the labor that he is talking about. When we enter into the kingdom, we no longer have that labor. That will be a thing of the past. So there are two broad commands that are given as a result of that. One in verse 11 and another in verse 16. The first command, the final exhortation of this warning section is, Therefore be diligent. Work hard at it. Make an effort at it. This is your goal. This is your task. Be goal-oriented about this. Be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Make an effort to be sure that you are going to uh, enter the millennial kingdom. Why? Because the Word of God is living and powerful. It's the Word of God that's going to expose in your life and in my life 
the, 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 the rationalizations, the failures. It's only the Word of God. It's not other Christians. It's the Word of God that exposes in our thinking the failures, the human viewpoint, all the rationalizations that we come. And if it's not exposed in this life by the Word of God, by the written Word of God, then trust me, when we are face to face with the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be exposed by the living Word uh, as, we make a dis- as He makes a distinction between divine good and human good. No creature is hidden from His sight. All will be revealed. But nevertheless, we go back to the principle that the writer concluded with in, in 2.17 and 18, that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He, he is not one who doesn't sympathize with our weaknesses. He does. He understands what we're going through because when it comes down to it, we're judged by a peer who has gone through the same things we've gone through. He's gone through the same testing, the same adversity, yet without sin. And we have our second command as a result of this. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. We have sustenance in our testing, our trials, our adversity in this life because we have a high priest who's gone through it just like we have. Therefore, we're to go to the Father in prayer constantly about this because our high priest will make sure that we are sustained. And this is done through His Word. It's done through the Holy Spirit. And it's based on grace. So what we see in these first four chapters is the challenge to be future-oriented, to understand that God has a destiny for us that doesn't apply to this life, but it applies to the future life. When we are absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. On the basis of that evaluation, we will be given a place in the kingdom. We will be given a role in the kingdom to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that place is going to be determined by the capacity that we develop in this life to think biblically to, to, based on the advance in our spiritual life so that we can rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a true future orientation, but there's a threat that we can jeopardize the whole thing by acting like the Exodus generation and failing. Notice the Exodus generation failed ten times according to numbers. Each time they failed, God forgave them. They confessed their sin, they got back in fellowship. But see, they didn't advance spiritually. They didn't solve the problems of what kept getting them out of fellowship. So they just kept getting back in fellowship and sinning, getting out of fellowship. And there was no forward advance. That happens with a lot of people. They just think that it's all about confession of sin. As long as I confess my sin, it's okay. And they sort of use 1 John 1, 9 as a license to sin. But what we learn here is that this Exodus generation got forgiveness. They got forgiveness. They got forgiveness. But because they didn't advance and deal with the problem of the inherent unbelief in their soul... And they never went forward. They jeopardized entry into the promised land. The same thing can happen to believers in the church age. We think that it it stops with confession of sin, but it doesn't. Confession of sin just gets us back to the launching pad to go forward in our spiritual growth. But if we don't grow spiritually and advance to spiritual maturity where there's capacity for righteousness, capacity for leadership, capacity to rule and reign with Christ, then we jeopardize that future inheritance. This gets developed even more in chapter 5 as we look at Jesus Christ in terms of his priesthood and his high priesthood and how that relates to our present role in the church age. So we will begin that in three weeks. Remember next week, I will leave for Kiev on Wednesday. So there's no class on Thursday night next week. The next week there won't be any class on Thursday night because Charlie Clough will be here on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then the week after that, everybody just gets a freebie on Tuesday and Thursday night of that week. And then I return on the 20th and we're back to our regular schedule on the 21st. So make sure you look at your calendar in the bulletin. If you don't have one, pay close attention to it or you're liable to show up here when nobody's here. Another thing, we're going to have a guest speaker on Sunday, Sunday a week, which is the 8th, and then on the 10th, Dr. Rich Klein from College of Biblical Studies. 
Now, when you have a guest speaker, it's important to show up. You know, there's a mentality that some people pick up that, and I know I've been as guilty of this as another person. Oh, we have a guest speaker, so it doesn't matter. He's not going to be as, as good or this reason or I won't learn from him. And I try to always pick guest speakers that you're going to learn something from. Uh, men that have some specialty in some area of study the word that uh, I haven't had time to, to focus on. But these are different uh, men with different gifts, just like you know Charlie real well. You've heard Tommy Ice and Randy Price and others. So I think you will be uh, pleased with what Dr. Klein uh, brings to feed the sheep on those days. He's going to teach from Proverbs, and I think you will you'll enjoy that. So it's good manners for a congregation to show up when there's a guest speaker. There's nothing... I've been there. Guest speaker, you show up and attendance on Sunday mornings normally 200 and the guest speaker shows up and there's 80 people there. That's not good manners. So it's good to be here. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this, this evening, to be challenged by what it says. We pray that we might keep our future destiny in focus that we're living each day in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.